Welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. The Cover 2 Resources podcast is an ongoing series in which we interview experts in the fight against opioid addiction. It is made possible through donations and sponsorships from concerned individuals or organizations. If you want to help in the fight against opioid addiction, please consider donating or sponsoring the Cover 2 podcast. Go to cover2.org for more information. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources, and I'm joined today for this series, actually, with um, Jess, Jessica Nickel, who is the founder of the Addiction Policy Forum in Washington, D.C., an organization that presents awards for innovation in addressing special programs that address the uh, opioid addiction epidemic that we're experiencing in our country. And we're happy today to also have with us Secretary of Corrections, John Wetzel, who's implemented a program in the PA, Department of Corrections, that's truly amazing. So, Jessica and John, welcome. Thanks so much for for having me. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Okay. So, Jessica, can you start us off and tell us how you happened to meet John? Um, I think I met Secretary Wetzel through the Council of State Government's um, Justice Center Board of Directors and all of the amazing work he's done on addressing prisoner reentry in his system in Pennsylvania um, and really as a national leader among other corrections directors as well. Um, it's really advancing how we um, uh, work to support individuals that are reentering communities from prison and jail. Um, And then from those conversations, I also learned about an amazing pilot project um, that he had initiated in his uh, prison system for inmates and individuals that had opioid use disorder um, by providing medication-assisted treatment um, behind the walls and then upon release to assist in their reentry and make sure they had access to treatment and recovery. So it was amazing and innovative and sort of exciting to see a a large prison system really tackle um, this issue um, and also engage in um, evidence-based methods like medication-assisted treatment. Um, This is a Vivitrol pilot, so so, um, it's so important nationwide for him to do this work and really show what can be done when we uh, follow the evidence and and use innovative treatment uh, therapies. And this problem has really exploded over the course of the last 10 years. The individuals entering the prison system with opioid use disorder has doubled from 6% to 12%. So tell us about the impact that that's had on you and the correctional system. Secretary Wetzel. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, yeah, you nailed that number. It has, has literally doubled. And when we talk 6% up to 12%, we're talking of 20,000 people. So we're talking huge numbers. And 
uh, it has a significant effect because individuals struggling with addiction, um, we need to address that for them to be successful citizens when they get out. And I think one of the things that historically we as a practice, we as a field have struggled with is we're quick to, we're quick to throw labels on people and uh, inmate and offender and all this stuff. But at the end of the day, we have human beings walking through our front door. These human beings have barriers from being successful citizens, which is why they come to prison. And it's our job, and we talk about risks and needs and all this stuff, but at the end of the day, it's our job to help help them remove as many barriers as uh, we can while they're incarcerated with us. And that's why we provide treatment. Every one of our prisons in Pennsylvania has a, a therapeutic community or an inpatient drug and alcohol and all that stuff. Even with all that um, being said, we still uh, were struggling with individuals getting out and relapsing in particular, and especially around opioids. And, you know, everybody uh, uses the Einstein quote, like, uh, <clears throat> doing the same thing, expecting a different result is, is the definition of insanity. But I think there's a, a better one that describes our approach. And it's simply that problems can't be solved at the same level of thinking at which they were created. Like, we cannot continue to approach a different problem the same way. And that's, that's a, a big criticism of uh, a lot of our big public systems, but uh, I'll speak about corrections in particular. So we decided that um, there was uh, several medication-assisted treatments out there, um, but Vivitrol seemed to make a lot of sense uh, for a couple reasons. One, uh, because it's a shot, so you don't have to worry necessarily about uh, making sure somebody takes it every day and those kinds of things. Lasts for 30 days, doesn't it? Yep, lasts for 30 days. And we also didn't have to worry about uh, it being diverted uh, for uh, inappropriate use versus the therapeutic use uh, like some other ones were. So I, I asked my staff to explore it. Uh, it really, to me, when, when I first heard about it, sounded like a game changer for our field. And, and our staff and, and you know, corrections folks in general, myself included, are pretty skeptical, a pretty skeptical lot. Um, and they said, well, we don't think and this and that. And I said, well, do me a favor, just explore it. And, and we'll sit down in, in a couple of weeks and, and you tell me why this won't work for us. And, you know, I'll listen to you honestly. And they came back and they said, we can't find any reasons why we shouldn't try it. So I was at the time I was working for a very conservative Republican, former uh, attorney general with uh, a pretty conservative House and a fairly conservative Senate. And at the time, uh, I, it, 2013, 2012, somewhere around there. Um, we didn't really realize the uh, opioid epidemic that was coming or was probably here, and we just weren't paying attention close enough, uh, quite frankly. So we started it at a female prison in a big system like ours. Like we have uh, 48,000 inmates, 26 prisons, uh, 60 halfway houses. This is a huge footprint. Um, what, how we scale stuff is we'll, we'll do a pilot at a specific facility. Uh, we chose the female facility. Uh, for a couple reasons. One, we have very good staff there. Um, we have very good uh, counselors and treatment staff there. Um, but also, uh, people um, generally are support initiatives for women quicker than supporting initiatives for men. And that's not doesn't sound nice or whatever. But you know, we live in a, a real political world, and huh. that's just a political reality. I didn't so, know that. Um, Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes the political dynamics are, are very interesting. So we, we started with a relatively small group, and 
um, we have to learn what's going to stand in our way. And one of the first things that stood in our way is there was no infrastructure in the community of prescribers. Um, so it took us two years to scale it by working and developing a cadre of providers. And so we targeted females going back to uh, Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, and Harrisburg. And um, again, I think we, we probably ran about 15 females through it, and we got enough indication that it looked like it was going to be successful that we scaled it. Uh, and, and we've had 100 men go through so far. And we've expanded the areas from three. I think we have six or eight areas now. Now there's uh, some mobile um, units that, that travel around to some of our more rural areas. Um, and at the same time, uh, when the Wolf Administration came on in 2015, uh, battling heroin was top on his list. And we put together a multi-department group from our Human Services, Drug and Alcohol, Department of Health, and medication-assisted treatment was a big piece of that. And fortunately, or unfortunately, or ironically, um, the Corrections Department, our experience helped them scale it uh, throughout the Commonwealth. And what I know from, we, we don't have all the data in yet, but what I know is that people who get Vivitrol before they leave and follow up for the, uh, initially we started with five subsequent shots, I think we're up to 11 now, are less likely to relapse in their first six months than those who don't. Wow, that's powerful. So you also do linkage. Other than Vivitrol, which is key to your program and the success of your program, linkage to the com community there after they are out. So, yes. and you have this temporary period whereby they can get closer to where they live. Can we talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so the, uh, two kind of separate contracts. One of the things for this group in particular uh, and, and because it, um, the substance use disorder is eligible to be funded through medical assistance, um, it forced us to um, put mechanisms in place to sign people up for the uh, uh, medical assistance they were eligible for, thereby funding the shot. So it took some of the, the funding pressures off this pilot. Um, but actually, that's a good practice. We should be doing that for everyone. So we've, we've been slowly expanding, but this is certainly a priority group. Then we had this other initiative where we... Again, we're a big system, and it's a big state. The different, the distance between – we have a prison in Erie, Pennsylvania, which is like an hour and a half away from Buffalo, New York, and Philadelphia is probably a seven-hour drive. Um, and we have more beds in the west than we have people from the west and vice versa in the east. So one of the strategies we, we employed is to try to get people closer to home the closer they get to home. Why is that? And on top of uh, – because what we know is that people need – supports. All of us need supports to be successful citizens, right? And uh, folks coming out of prison in particular, uh, especially if they have appropriate and healthy family supports, uh, recidivate at a lower level. In other words, they're less likely to commit a crime when they have family supports and specifically when they get visits from their family in the last year. Now, if your family member is seven hours away, it's a pretty big barrier to, to visit them on a regular basis. So, First of all, it's the right thing to do to try to get people closer to home before they get to home. But, um, but from an outcome standpoint, people do better when we do that. So uh, especially in their last year, uh, we try to move them closer to home. At the same time, we started what, what we call transitional housing units. And these are housing units specifically for people who have completed all their programming and are within a year, year and a half of getting out. And again, this is the, at the prison closest to their home, and everything on that housing unit is focused on getting out. 
Uh, I mean, the reality is in a, in a big prison system, you meet all kinds of people. We have uh, lifers. We have people for a relatively short time. There's a big mix of individuals. And oftentimes, uh, that mix is not healthy for someone who's focused on getting out. So we wanted to create kind of this parallel universe where everything was just focused on how you're going to be successful when you get out. And the transitional housing units is how we developed that. So these units, um, we do a lot of uh, not necessarily the inpatient drug and alcohol. They would have had that already. But we prep them for outpatient because part of this Vivitrol pilot is also outpatient drug and alcohol at or whatever level is indicated by your assessed needs. So it's, it's both a combination of this medication-assisted treatment with, with therapy and supervision and case management and all that good stuff. Um, so all that can start in this transitional housing unit as, long, as well as developing um, things like resumes and we do job fairs and these things. So we're really trying to, to make the environment as, uh, as community-like as possible. And again, I think the key figure is that every inmate there is focused on nothing but getting out and being successful. So more than 65% of your inmates struggle with substance use disorder. Is that right? Yeah. Right? That's that right? Yeah. Yeah. And that's probably a conservative estimate. I mean, obviously, a lot of it's self-report. Um, so I, I, I'm an optimist, but I'm not optimistic to think that every person who comes in there tells us the truth from day one. Yeah, that poses an overwhelming challenge. Do you have any statistics to share with us in terms of the success of your program so far? It's early days, certainly, but any preliminary dis uh, statistics? Yeah, the one preliminary statistic I have is that uh, significantly lower relapse in six months. That's the one statistic we have so far out of the first hundred. Um, the rest should be coming probably midsummer uh, around recidivism and some of those other things. But I'll tell you, just the relapse number alone is enough uh, to hang our hat on to uh, look to how to expand and also try to learn once we get the other numbers. Um, I'm hoping that at least one of those other numbers isn't what it needs to be, so it forces us to look back and see what other supports we need to build around uh, these individuals. Because, you know, reentry is hard work. I mean, people think that, uh, that there's this magic thing and we should uh, be able to, people should go out and they should be able to get right back up on their feet. But again, when you look at, at just, um, you know, I, I, have my, I have a daughter graduating from Temple in two months. And she's scrambling to find a job and trying to figure out where she's going to live and all this stuff. And this is someone who's graduating uh, in four years, thank God, with uh, a bachelor's degree. So when you just think about kids going in into society, um, it's a struggle. So add on somebody who has uh, broken the law because they broke the law. They spent some time uh, with us in prison. Someone who has an addiction issue also um, – 29% of our population uh, suffers from some uh, form of a mental illness, and about 70% of that group is co-occurring disorder with an addiction issue. Um, and then you talk about the collateral consequences with uh, having a felony record and all this stuff. It's, it's complicated, and it's hard work. But, but what pilots like this say is, look, okay, we know one of the issues is going to be um, someone's going to get out and they're going to crave um, whatever substance they were abusing, and how can we um, do better to keep them sober? So just the fact that people are less likely to relapse, we can build off that. And that, that's one less barrier 
Um, now we got to continue to work on all the, other, all the other barriers. And I think the relapse number is especially impressive given the significant increase in uh, heroin and heroin overdoses and all that stuff. So not only is the relapse lower, but it's lower at a time where heroin use is even more prevalent. So I think that's pretty significant. I can't wait to see the, the full report. Sure. So um, on average, how long do most of your inmates stay in your treatment program? Um, the inpatient, if they're inpatient level, it's on average four months uh, is the target, which means that some four months would be the low end. Uh, which means some would be there for six months. But also at some of our uh, facilities, we're fortunate enough to have uh, like a, a sober unit, so a place that people coming out and don't want to go back in general population and want to stay close to that therapeutic environment can stay. And that's also how we introduce people into the, the therapeutic environment. Um, and then again, we have outpatient. Basically, uh, every level of treatment on the continuum uh, we have in here, and then we replicate that also in the community through our halfway houses. We have both inpatient and outpatient uh, services available in our halfway house system. So we're we're pretty fortunate in that way. So when someone is getting ready to get out, on on average, how long is that stay that they get when you transfer them close to the community that they came from, that they live in? I mean, ideally, uh, mm-hmm. a year. A year. We don't live in an ideal world, uh, but ideally, yeah, I think ideally someone would complete uh, whatever drug and alcohol treatment because we know it's, that's best delivered closer to release. Then they go to this um, transitional housing unit, and then they uh, transfer to the community either to their home if they have an appropriate home environment or to uh, one of our halfway houses and then get the whatever appropriate level of treatment is there. I think that's the sweet spot if we really want to do a better job with this group. Um, but I think one of the challenges is, you know, I mentioned we get 20, about 20,000 commitments a year. We've released 20,000 people a year. So when you think about a system that releases 20,000 people a year, and when you think about the need to be successful, you have to individualize. So the path can't be the same for everyone. Uh, different people have different needs, and if we're not responsive to those needs, uh, they're they're not going to be successful, and and oftentimes when we have discussions around this, again jumping back to um, what I said earlier, we're talking about human beings who have intrinsic value, and so uh, either coming from that side or coming from the fiscal conservative side, um, when people recidivate, first of all we use this term recidiv- recidivate, but it means that they're not behaving in the community. And they're contributing to crime in many cases because the reason for uh, recidivism is oftentimes a new crime. So when we get an individual who comes out and is less likely to commit a crime, that's real crime prevention. But beyond that, um, these people have families. They have children. I mean, my my 48,000 inmates have 81,000 children. That's such a significant number. So we really – I think it's, it's beyond a job. I think it's a responsibility that citizens of Pennsylvania to set folks up to be successful. Folks who are suffering from substance use not only can be successful, are successful, if we work with them and put them on the right path and give them opportunities uh, to get back on the right track. So um, we really think it starts with that understanding and that intrinsic value 
of the, the human beings that come through our system. And then just focus on, let's just figure out how we can be a little better today than we were yesterday. So studies have shown that it'll take up to two years for someone in recovery to reach a point where their odds go way up. Suddenly they go up uh, 80%, 90% in terms of being successful long term. And the unique thing that you've done is you have kind of addressed a big, big issue here, which is when you go from one, I'll call it service provider, and one aspect of addressing this illness onto the next service provider, you often, oftentimes have no continuity there. And the person who is suffering with substance use disorder is kind of left to their own devices to uh, connect the two and, and make a smooth transition. And studies have revealed that you have a 35% drop historically between these different providers. And now you take it one step further and you consider over the course of those two years, that period, you're going to have quite a number of providers. You'll have four or five different providers that's involved. And you've done something, Secretary Wetzel, which is just profound. You've connected them with their community, and I'm sure that that's going to pay big-time dividends. So Yeah, well, first of all, I just got to highlight my, my staff, my, the team we have here at the Pennsylvania Department of Corrections, uh, is top-notch. And I think what's really unique about this and what I really have to highlight is our partnership with the Department of Human Services. Um, we Oftentimes, we compartmentalize. And if we were gonna, if you're gonna lay a blank sheet out and say, how, do, how can we address this individual who is suffering from addiction and has committed a crime, we would not draw up the system we have right now. Um, it's compartmentalized, it's, we, we um, address people by funding streams, not wrap uh, services around the individual and those kinds of things. And without our partnership with uh, Ted Dallas, the Secretary of Department of Human Services, and our staff working together to make sure that we're on the same page and we're talking the same language and we're taking the same approach to someone who's suffering from this, whether they committed a crime or not. I don't care what crime somebody committed. If they're coming back to the community, it's in all of our best interest to have them uh, start on the right, the right step. So we have uh, a myriad of partners here in Pennsylvania. Uh, the Department of Corrections is fortunate that we, we kind of started this initiative in Pennsylvania here. I want to pass this back to Jessica for a minute to speak to why the program that Secretary Wetzel and his staff have put together stood out to you as being such a, a big example of excellence in their field. Absolutely. Well, Secretary Wetzel is an innovator, right? And I think... Um, it's so important for the field that we've had um, such a large correction system uh, take this head on and implement uh, medication-assisted treatment for all of their residents, their, their folks that they serve that have an opioid use disorder, and then the elements that they put on top with um, sort of case management, connection to families, moving them closer to counseling and programs. Um, all of this um, is, means that they have a truly comprehensive model um, for treatment of individuals with substance use disorders in a correction setting um, with follow-up in the, the community, um, which is a game changer. And if this can be replicated and uh, brought to other um, prisons and jails nationwide, it could be a, a real um, uh a real strategy to change outcomes for individuals um, and get them connected to recovery. 
So now I'd like to talk about some of those success stories. I'm sure with all of the people that you've worked with, Secretary Wetzel, there's got to be a few success stories that come to mind. Do you care to share one or two with us? Yeah, I mean, listen, one of the, one of the challenging parts about working corrections is that we, um, especially the line level staff and middle managers, the people who are doing all the work, rarely get to see their successes and always get to see their failures when they come back. And so the, the nice parts about my job is I get to travel around the Commonwealth and, and I can tell you of two uh, specific, in one case I was actually at a, a um, parade and an individual came out of one of our programs, uh, came up to me and introduced me to his daughter. And he had been out, uh, I'm going to say he had been out about nine months, uh, not quite a year yet, but he was working and most importantly he was back in his daughter's life. and and. Uh, you know, there's kind of a, a code that we use. How you doing? I'm doing good. You know, that kind of thing. But this guy just couldn't talk enough about, um, like, going to a parent-teacher conference and those kinds of things. And that, and to me, it just really hammered home um, what what an opportunity we have to change the tra- trajectory of not just people who come through our systems' lives, but their families' lives. Um, the second one literally just happened a couple weeks ago where a mother of an, of an inmate was at a, a speech I did in Lancaster. And the, the subject of the speech was really just about, um, about talking about kids and, and how we can do better by kids and also folks coming out and wrapping supportive environments around them so they can get back and be parents and, and these kinds of things. And this lady came up to me and she said her son is incarcerated. You, know, you kind of cringe because generally people don't come up. when the, you know, There's usually a complaint that, that comes after that. And she told me to let the super thank the superintendent for her because uh, we saved your son's life. That he was suffering from addiction, they had tried everything, uh, and it was his second incarceration with us. And this time he got a, a combination of two things. Um, he got one of our vocational programs that led him to actually get into Stevens Tech, which is a, a trade school, to be an electrician. Uh, and he got sober, and he got a toolkit uh, on how to stay sober he's out in the community. Um, and, and, you know, I think part of this is shame on us for not telling these stories enough because we, we often focus on um, the negative. But I, I appreciate you asking me that because, you know, we really do, when we talk about a 60% recidivism rate, that means 40% are succeeding. And that's not great numbers, but it's a lot of people who are doing well. Yeah. And and programs like this, and, and really an approach where we got to understand that it doesn't matter what system. The systems have to work together and speak the same language and take the same approach. And, and please, we need to really open our eyes and use tools available like medication-assisted treatment that for some reason we've been hesitant to use for a long time. There is an opportunity to change the trajectory of a lot of people's lives uh, by taking this approach. Speak to other correctional facilities across the country now and give them your advice in terms of how they might lay the groundwork and go forward with a program such as yours in their facilities. Yeah, well, uh, you know, I get a lot of calls from my colleagues around the country, and I, and I got to tell you, one of the, the things that your listeners should know is that um, the 
majority of the corrections directors in the country are people who understand that we have a job well beyond care, custody, and control. And, and part of our job is to, to leave people, have people leave our systems whole. So I get a lot of calls about when people hear about these programs. And, and a couple pieces of advice. Number one piece of advice is it educate your staff, educate uh, the individuals uh, who are incarcerated, and educate their families. One of the, you know, when I said I did a pilot uh, and it started, it took two years to get it started up, it's because we had a couple of failures to launch. And um, we didn't do a specific education campaign to inmates to even, to do a full explanation of what it is. And uh, and we didn't do it to staff because staff need to sell the inmates on it and, and need to reinforce the fact that, yeah, this is a good thing. It's going to uh, um, be more likely to get sober. And, and so there's a lot of, of uh, oftentimes just not a lot of knowledge. Um, and then using the family members and helping educate the family members as part of the support network that are gonna make people successful. We actually have on our, our webpage, uh, which is simply www.cor.pa.gov, uh, we have a page on medication-assisted treatment. I, I, we actually did a video for staff and for inmates to describe it. So I think that the number one thing I'd say is you gotta start with education and you gotta get your staff's buy-in. And then once you do that, everything falls in place. But also don't underestimate, depending on, and I, and I don't really know much outside of Pennsylvania as far as a prescribing infrastructure, but that's something that, that we didn't even consider when we were putting this together and uh, turned out to be a really big challenge for us. And, but fortunately, because of the groundwork we laid in 2013 and 2014, when the Wolf Administration came in in 2015 and really expanded this through the human service realm, um, part of the reason why, um, why we were able to scale that quickly is because of the legwork we had done for those first two years. So that, I think those would be two of the huge pieces of advice. And again, everything really needs to start with valuing the humanity of people who come through our system and believing in, in their capacity to change. And if you don't have those two things, then nothing else matters. Well, we really want to thank you for joining us today, Secretary Wetzel. It's been very, very informative. What final comments would you have for our listeners? Yeah, I think, I think that my final comments would be that we as a community, we as a criminal justice system, but we as government need to start problem solving around individuals, not, not around departments. And we need to just remove all these walls and these false walls we put between each other. We need to look at the individual and figure out what path, when government has to get involved in an individual's life, what path can we put them on to get them out of government involvement as early as possible? And if we can do that at the first arrest, then we should do that at the first arrest. If we can do that uh, when we notice somebody's uh, behaving a certain way in school or in college or in the workplace, um, we, we really need to work together and come together as a team. And we have to understand that it, we're not, it's not us versus them. It's, it's not them in prison. It's not them addicted. Them is us. And, and we're all invested in people being good citizens. So that, that would be my final message. Them is us. Quite profound. Thank you. Thanks. I appreciate the opportunity today. Okay. Jessica Nickel and I have been visiting today with Secretary John Wetzel, who runs the Pennsylvania Department of Corrections 
and has integrated and implemented some very, very progressive treatment pro programs for his inmates, and he's connected them with the community to ease their transition back into the community and back to their families. My name is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources. Thank you for listening to this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. With your support, the Cover 2 team can continue to research and broadcast these resources to others in need. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.